Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. We're here today to talk about psychiatric genetic counseling. Psychiatric disease is heavily genetic, and conditions like ADHD, autism, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, and depression all have high heritability estimates. And yet, the average genetic counselor taking a pedigree is so much more likely to focus on a family history of heart disease, cancer, than to ask about psychosis, mood disorder, history of suicide. This does not indicate a lack of interest. In fact, among my students, nothing interests them more. And every year, many of my students want to focus their thesis work on mental health, either of patients or of their colleagues and medical caregivers. And that makes sense, because if you look at the statistics, so many of them likely have experienced mental health crises in themselves, their friends, their family. But out in practice, there is, one might say, a sense of disempowerment. Uh, counselors don't want to ask because they don't know what they will do with the information. And all of this explains why my guest today is such a rock star. Janine Austin is a professor of psychiatry and medical genetics at the University of British Columbia, widely acknowledged in psychiatry and genetic counseling as the trailblazer who has made psychiatric genetic counseling a real, though not widely available, thing, a discipline backed by evidence that it works. Janine, welcome. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to chat. Yeah, this is a very big treat for me because like just a quick disclosure, Janine, one of my oldest friends in the field. <laughs> Not that she's old. I'm way older. But <laughs> Janine, I, you know, so all this, I've never asked you, did you go into genetic counseling with the plan to focus on the genetics of psychiatric disease? Very much so. Yes, actually. Um, and that's weird. I can't believe we haven't talked about that. Yeah. Um, so actually, I, I did. Like, so I went into genetic counseling after having finished my PhD, which was in the genetics of psychiatric disorders. And it was really during that process of doing my PhD that I discovered that, um, you know, so mental illness is relevant to my family history. It's relevant to me personally. I live with depression and anxiety and nightmare disorder and stuff. Um, but anyway, so back when I was doing my PhD, um, my family were asking me questions about things like, well, you know, is schizophrenia genetic? What about bipolar? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your brother? And um, I realized that I did not have the language or the capacity to be able to take what I was doing in my wet lab molecular PhD and make it meaningful for my family. Um, so, yeah, that that was really what what drove me into genetic counseling, ultimately, was realizing that it wasn't just my family. It was all these other families out there that probably had similar questions. Right, right. And when I talk to psychiatrists about genetic counseling, I get a lot of, but there's nothing by, to offer. By yeah. which I mean... There's no testing. That's right. You are someone who takes the counseling side of genetic counseling very seriously. Um, I want to ask you to make a case for what genetic counseling can offer sans testing in general, because I know that patient by patient, it can be quite different. Mm. <laughs> OK, so I'm just going to like it's because I think even genetic counselors end up conflating genetic counseling with genetic testing sometimes. Um. You know, and so like what I'm so I, I run these psychiatric genetic counseling workshops um, where one of the exercises that I get people to do is to think about 
what are we doing in genetic counseling? Not psychiatric genetic counseling, but in genetic counseling in general. What 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 are we what what are we aiming to achieve? And so people will get into talking about, well, you know, helping people make better decisions. And I'm like, well, is it always about decisions, though? You know, every encounter is somebody making a decision. And anyway, so we have to go through this whole thing. And it's like better decisions. So that what? You know, I behave like a four year old just asking people questions. Why? But why? But why? And um, <laughs> I'm sure it's very annoying for people. But um, what we get to in the end is that people remember that what genetic counselling is ultimately supposed to be about is about helping people. You know, that in some way, shape or form, we do what we do. We go into genetic counselling and the intervention that we provide, we, we do because ultimately we want to make people feel better in air quotes <laughs> in some way. Right. So but we get so lost, I think, in the day to day practicalities of what we're doing that you forget what the point of it is. And so. So do you need to have a genetic test in order to deliver the outcome of helping somebody to feel better using genetic? No, of course you. Oh, I nearly dropped my first F-bomb right there. Um, <laughs> I stopped myself. Um, anyway, so no, you don't. You don't have to. And so in genetic counselling for psychiatric disorders, you know, really what it's about is about helping people make meaning of what we know from research about what causes these conditions. And that's a big deal in the context of psychiatric illness. People feel guilty. They feel ashamed. They feel stigmatized. They blame themselves or others. Um, they're afraid. Um, and that's all stuff that we can address really effectively, even without having any genetic testing. That is exactly why I focus so hard on the on the counseling piece. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was pretty negative about the availability of psychiatric genetic counseling. Do you want to push back on that at all? Is that true? <laughs> Do you envision a future where psychiatric genetic counseling is routine? Oh, my goodness, Laura, you know, I do. I mean, like, seriously. So when Laura said that, like, one of the oldest friends, yeah, I mean, I think I first met you when I was still a student in my genetic counselling training through the psychiatric SIG of NSGC. And, um, you know, not long after that, I think, was when I started realising, hang on a minute, the special interest group for cancer is huge. Um, what's that about? Like, why is this psychiatric special interest group all of like 15 people as compared to the. Well, it's a very rare. It's a very rare condition. Disease. <laughs> Pretty much everybody feels great. Yeah, you know? for sure. Everybody, yeah. is, everybody is clear thinking. Especially now. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, like that. And I've been very public about this. I Like my dream. It's not just a dream that I'm idly sitting around about either. Like the dream that I'm pushing for to actualize is that um, psychiatric genetic counseling is the next cancer. It should be like not not in in the context of the disease, but in the context of like size of <laughs> of the um, of the workforce that of psychiatric genetic counseling is going to metastasize. That's oh, what you're saying. Um, <laughs> sure. I don't really like that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. Um, yeah, we should we should like there should be hundreds and hundreds of psychiatric genetic counselors, given what we know. Yeah. Over here, I mean, I try in New York with the the tiny village in which I live mm. of New York. 
Um, it has frustrated me for years that there's essentially no psychiatric genetic counseling available. And I've tried like knocking on the door of some of the major institutions of New York and saying, this is something you should offer, something your patients will will want, desire, need, help them. Look, there's evidence. See, I'm saying your case for you. Look, there's evidence, real evidence. We can get nice. back to the moment. Um, and they're kind of like, Oh, but there it doesn't already exist. And, um, you know, it's like everybody else is looking for it to happen first. Right. It's yeah, a, that's right. An egg kind of deal. Um, so. It's hard for it's hard for me to ask you, like I could say, what about the model you built? But Canada's such a different healthcare system than the United States. Um, sure. Um, and I think one of the things that pisses me right off. That doesn't even count as a swear word. So we're OK here. Um, is that I think, you know, one of the perceptions in the US and I'm not I'm not proposing that that's what you're saying to me, because I know that, you know, that it was not straightforward. But I think that there's a perception amongst some some places in the US that Canada is this like healthcare nirvana. Um, that, you know, basically I showed up and I was like, hey, this psychiatric genetic counseling thing sounds like a good idea. And somebody rolled me out a red carpet and said, why don't you do it? Here's a whole bunch of money. We would love for you to just do the thing. Do it here. And that's not exactly how it went down, let's just say. Yeah, um, I have seen you fighting for the existence of your clinic over the years with <laughs> great ferocity. And I know that nobody handed you buckets of ducats like here. Go and do it. So but my there point is, is there is the sense that at least if you can say, look at what I can prove about the lifetime or multi-generational impact of this treatment, that you have a chance at yeah. swinging some hearts and minds, whereas our system just the the economics of it don't allow any given decider to make a choice based on lifetime, like what's logical over a long period of time. All of our financial decisions are based on what makes sense for our, like, say, an insurer in the next 12 months, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a beautiful segue into talking about some of our most recent data that's actually... <laughs> Yay! That's actually not published yet. Um, so please take it, you know, in in those terms that that this has not yet been peer reviewed. Um, that we're still working on some of the second lines of analyses, but we have actually got access to um, it's called Pop Data BC, which is like a population health database. Um, it's available in our province, and um, the analysis that we finished is one where. We have looked at the frequency of psychiatric hospitalizations in the year prior to and in the year post receiving psychiatric genetic counseling. And what we found is that we have a statistically significant decrease in the frequency of psychiatric hospitalizations in the year following genetic counseling. So when you say that that's the time, you know, a 12 month time horizon is what people are thinking about when they're making healthcare decisions in the US. I, I know. And honestly, that's not wildly different from Canada. People only think in political cycles, right, which are three to five years tops. And so it, it's the same thing. So um, so so anyway, back to the exciting stuff, not, not the 
politics. Um, so, yeah, so we're showing that we've got the statistically significant decrease um, decrease in psych hospitalizations. But the really cool thing about it is that you can then because there's publicly available data about how much one day of psychiatric hospitalization costs. So we can start working out some of the like health economic elements of things. And what we've been able to show is that one genetic counsellor working full time, seeing five new patients a week, saves the healthcare system three hundred and fifty thousand Canadian dollars per year. That's net. So after accounting for their own salary and benefits, just in terms of decreasing psychiatric hospitalization costs, which that's amazing. And and we're just talking economics, of course, when you think of the human. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So So, I think that for me, this is so exciting because, as you know, like in genetic counseling, I think we haven't really looked at these kinds of outcomes. You know, we're we're good at looking at patient satisfaction and, you know, in more recent years, things like empowerment and so on. And um, I'm not sniffing at those outcomes. I mean, I've been one of the biggest proponents pushing for us to be measuring outcomes like empowerment in our field. But again, it's not like that's not the end of it, right? Empowerment is nice as an outcome because obviously it's good to feel empowered, but it's also an important outcome because people do not change their behavior to protect their health unless they are empowered, right? So So if there are like a relationship, I think I know the answer to this, between their reported sense of empowerment and things like um staying with the uh, medications or uh yeah yeah so um these are these are exactly things that we hope to be able to look at in some of the data that we have so what we have been able to show so far is that psychiatric genetic counseling increases empowerment great and as i just said what we hope to do like empowerment is nice on its own but it's also necessary if you're going to get people to change their behavior to take care of their their mental health or other kinds of health better so then what we've done is looked at well do people change their behavior you know so we know they're empowered do they change their behavior and we've got some evidence showing that yes they do they do seem to change their behavior and that's the rationale that we used in order to justify using this population database to look at mental health outcomes because if people are in fact empowered and they are in fact changing their behavior well then does that actually make a difference to their mental health and that's the question that we're really asking with this hospitalization data study so i think in genetic counseling we've been reluctant to ask these kinds of questions historically and i think if i'm being brutally honest it's because we're afraid of the answers <laughs> I, I don't think we um, have enough confidence that we are actually making a difference. Um, it, and it can be really hard to figure out what outcomes to look at. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about this because the outcomes I'm telling you about, this decreased in um, healthcare costs associated with psychiatric hospitalization is a result of just, and I'm using air quotes frantically here, just talking, right? It's just genetic counselling. There's no genetic testing involved in this. So all of that economic stuff I was just talking about is just the result of talking. Yeah, amazing. Which actually brings me back. So I had said there's no testing. But actually, there are so many tests <laughs> in psychiatric genetics right now. It's like it's like it's like being thirsty out on the ocean, right? Yeah. There's so much water and nothing to drink. 
So you can, should you choose, get polygenic scores that yes. measure overall genetic liability to psychosis or new disorders. You can get tests for single gene variants and copy number variants to try and ascertain the genetic cause of mental illness. Um, and you can get pharmacogenetic tests to advise you on drug choices. So many different tests. And, you know, so the questions we actually have about tests aren't like, do they exist? But are they bullshit? See, we can curse <laughs> You are liberated here. Thanks. And also, are they ready for prime time? Um, and I think when it comes to polygenic risk scores, there's a pretty clear answer there. But I'm going to let you do it because you're the expert. Oh, really? OK, I was waiting for you. No, no. <laughs> I'm technically you you do it. Gosh. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, um, so it's it's, you know, so for polygenic risk scores are in the context of psychiatric disorders. OK, let's let's talk about schizophrenia. OK, because that's the condition um, about which we have the greatest amount of knowledge genetics wise, essentially. And also it's one of the psychiatric disorders that has um, on average across the population the greatest genetic contributions. OK. So using that as an example, the very best polygenic risk score that we have the capability to construct right now for schizophrenia, the very best one explains less than 15 percent of an of a person's overall liability for developing schizophrenia. Right. So there's that. And just to just to say, well, you know, you may come back at me with, well, OK, great. Yeah, but that's right now. What about looking to the future? Won't it get better over time? And yeah, yeah, it probably will. And I've actually asked exactly that question to Naomi Ray, who is actually like for anybody that doesn't know her, she's one of the world's leading um statistical geneticists and she focuses on complex disorder genetics um so we've had exactly this conversation and in her so she, just to lead with her credentials she knows her shit she knows what she's talking about um she estimates that actually um the best polygenic risk scores that we will ever be able to construct for schizophrenia will only explain about 25 percent of a person's overall liability for developing one of the, that condition, which means that there's a whole 75 percent that we've got no clue about from polygenic. Well, that makes order. sense because we know there are non-genetic contributions. And also we know in schizophrenia there are very sub substantial rare genetic contributions, which is to say the stuff that isn't picked up by a polygenic risk score. And I'm going to get to them in one second. But I just have to say because I spent the morning listening to uh, uh, a talk by someone who does embryo screening and. Yeah you know, they might have a bit of an eyeball roll reaction to embryo screening, but it's here and it's something to talk about. And there's areas and uh, they made an interesting distinction between the value of embryo screening in a family where there's no help. There's no uh, family risk. There's there's no family history and where there is a family history because embryo screening is very limited and it, it, it can have a, a, a decent using these polygenic risk scores, sorry to be clear, mm -hmm. up for schizophrenia can have a significant relative risk. But that often translates into a very small absolute exactly. risk. So in other words, if your your risk is one percent because you're a human being, yeah. schizophrenia and you do embryo selection to reduce that risk, your risk is half a percent. Exactly. I mean, that's real, but also 
it's sort of still in exactly the same category, right? Like it's, it's a, but if you have a high risk as a family member, someone with schizophrenia, if your risk is 13% or 14%, and you can cut that in half, suddenly maybe that's more meaningful. Do you see in those cases, would you say like, okay, well, um, I can understand why someone would choose to test embryos for that particular purpose, as opposed to general purpose. Does that make sense to you? Does it make you uncomfortable? What do you think? Yeah, so I mean, I think, so this comes back, I mean, to me, this always ends up coming back to the counseling stuff, right? So um, to me, when we're talking about numbers, like, you know, when we're talking about quote unquote risks, right? Um, you know, 14% versus 7%, um, whether or not that's meaningful is it makes no fucking difference what I think to be frank if it's not me that's getting that result because of something I'm worried about then my appraisal of it is neither here nor there um, you know the appraisal of risk is very much in the eye of the beholder to me so you know so if, so if the person coming in for testing if it's meaningful to them then you're comfortable with that use well I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with it because of course it's about way more than that yeah. right it's it, there's so, there's so many complex ethical issues that play into this one very apparently simple you know situation it's not simple at all there's 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 and you're way more the expert on the ethical end end of things than I am but what I will say is that you know when when we're in these situations I think reducing it all down to talking about numbers and what do they mean and is this useful or is that useful? Like, let's think about why people are in this position in the first place, right? Why is somebody in the position where they want to invest in all the difficulty and cost that is associated with doing that? What drives that? It is not an intellectual or cognitive enterprise that drives somebody into that situation. It's... It, exactly. It's terror. People are afraid. They want a sense of control over something that they've experienced in the family, perhaps as just being like a terrible, terrible thing. Right. So 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 which is why my perception of number X as a chance for somebody to develop. And, I, you know, and this applies not just in the context of embryo screening. It applies in the context of any kind of prenatal counselling. It doesn't matter if I think 5% is low for outcome X. If the person that I'm counselling thinks 5% is astronomical, given how they've experienced that condition that we're talking about, then, then that's what matters more. So to get back to this polygenic embryo screening situation, what drives somebody to that is fear right it's it's desire desperate need for a sense of control over something and so that to me is exactly what genetic counseling for these conditions should be about it's about helping people to have you know a, a fuller and deeper um appreciation of their own like motivations for these kinds of things like and, and and can what you're doing in terms of the testing actually address those deep emotional needs that you're talking about so I had a student a couple of years ago brilliant student whose name is Kennedy Borley by the way um did a study a couple of years ago looking at the outcomes of psychiatric genetic counseling based on whether or not we discussed specific risk numbers like for kids to be affected and that kind of thing. And so 
in our clinic, what we do is we actually contract with people twice around numbers. So when somebody comes in the door, we say, hello, nice to meet you. What are you here for? And, you know, some people will come in saying numbers. I just want to know what's the chance for my kids to be affected. That's why I'm here. Um, some people come in with other things. Um, and um, and so regardless, we will contract with everybody around like, you know, well, you know, this is also something we can talk about. Is that of interest? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and for those people who come in the door saying I'm only here for numbers, we don't go, OK, well, let's have a look at your family history. La, 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 17 percent. That is not our response. The response that we tend to engage in is something more along the lines of, OK, no problem. We can absolutely talk about numbers and what the chances are for your children to be affected with the same thing that you have or whatever. Um, but what we found is really helpful is if we provide you some like framework in which to understand those numbers, where they're coming from, how to contextualize them, that kind of thing. So how does it sound to you if we start out by talking first about what we understand about how these illnesses arise in the first place? And then we can use that to frame our discussion about the numbers. And people usually almost always go, oh, yeah, OK. So Kennedy in her study. And so once we've done the discussion about genes and environment and we use this special model that we call the jar model to help people sort of visualize how genes and environment might work together. Um, and then once we've done that, we come back. And we say to people, OK, now we've talked about that. Let, do you want to talk about specific numbers now? What we found was. First of all, some of those people who came in saying, I want numbers. Once we'd done that jar model business and talked about genes, they are actually like, no, you know what? I don't I don't actually want to know numbers after all. And of everyone that we counseled, it was that group of people that had the greatest increases in empowerment. Over everybody else. So. You know, the people who came in saying, no, I don't want numbers. And after the second contracting, they said, no, I still don't want numbers. You know, so comparing it to all of those other groups of people, they had the greatest increases in empowerment. And I think that and I can't prove this, of course, we don't have mechanistic data on this. But my hypothesis is that the reason that group of people had the greatest increases in empowerment is because, the, you know, the reason they were asking for numbers in the first place is because they're afraid and because they want a sense of control. And that's exactly what we've addressed in the context of the counseling that we were doing before the second you know second contracting with them and 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 let's i'm gonna move along because i know you're you're you have a hard time limit here um <laughs> i'm busy shouting and i'm on, on a soapbox yes um no it's it's it's, it's a beautiful thing uh, so another area which is also fear-based mm. um when you have someone, when it's yourself or someone in your family or someone you love is uh, has psychiatric illness, the journey to get at the right medication is often long and torturous. Yeah. And there's a it's another area where people come and they're desperate. You know, yeah. we're, we're working with desperation and we always have to be aware of working with desperation because it makes people vulnerable. That's right. Being sold a bill of goods. But that desperation is real. Yeah. Getting the right medication is a terrible uh, struggle. And many of the medications involved have side effects. I'm going to tell a very brief story as uh, someone I knew growing up very, very close to someone was raised like my, my parents, mm -hmm. best friends. His child was raised. He's, he's within weeks of my own age. Mm -hmm. I never know a time I didn't know him. 
and he was one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. He became ill in college uh, with schizophrenia and has had a had a had a terrible course and suffering terribly, just very non-functional. And his medication wasn't working well for him. And this new medication came along, Clozerol. And they said, okay, we're going to do a trial of this medication. Uh, it's helping some people for whom nothing had ever helped yeah. before. It's the new of the, the newest um, uh, antipsychotics and the first of the new antipsychotics. But the thing is, we have to keep a close eye on you because in very rare cases, in 1% of the time, people get this rare complication with, that essentially wipes out yeah. their blood cell production and they can die. Or they will die if you have to take them off the medication. Yeah. And so Gary, to go on this medication, first of all, he had to go in the hospital and get cleared off of everything he was at. And his father said to me once, he said, I don't want, you can't even imagine what it was like to visit him. He goes, it was like the worst backward psychotic you'd ever heard the description of, completely mute, without eye contact, just sitting there. I mean, this is this beautiful kid whose brother was a physics professor at Stanford and was just as like, you know, just that kind of smart. So they put him on this new medication and it worked. I mean, it was like seeing Gary come out of this human being that, you know, that that hadn't been there. And we didn't really even know if he still existed, that person. And for a few weeks, he existed um, like like that um, Oliver Sacks story. For a few weeks, he was back, uh, at least to some extent, he existed and then he got a granulocytosis. And I tell you, it broke my heart. Yeah. So I understand the desperation which parents and other, you know, family members come to this question. And we've all felt, I think, from the very start of the Human Genome Project, that one of the great hopes was pharmacogenetic testing, particularly in psychiatry, yes. would make it easier. Yeah. And now we have several tests that cost thousands of dollars. They're highly marketed. They're sometimes FDA approved. Or so, what do you think of those of those tests? So, um, yeah, I'm actually doing a study at the moment that's looking. It's about pharmacogenetic testing for depression specifically, um, and we're looking at um, the evidence as it currently exists. Um, to try to provide some input for our provincial government about whether or not this is something that should be covered by our publicly funded healthcare system. Sorry, I'm just going to rub that in for a second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think one of the things that's really interesting about it is that um, that I've actually found fascinating for years is that in psychiatric genetic circles or in clinical psychiatry circles, you can present people with exactly the same pile of data and you will get some people who look at that pile of data and go, oh my God, we should be doing pharmacogenetic testing now, like for everyone, just do it, what are we doing? And you'll get other people looking at exactly the same pile of data and going, oh, we're not there yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. We need a lot more than this. And I so anyway, we so one of the things that we've done in the study is um, like a rapid review, a systematic start uh, using systematic strategies, rapid review. 
And basically, um, it's not published yet. It's under peer review at the moment. But what we found is that in terms of remission, there's actually a, a chance, a 1.4 times greater chance of remission if somebody has pharmacogenomics guided treatment than if they don't. And in terms of um, um, symptom reduction, um, again, it's about 1.3 times greater chance of symptom reduction with pharmacogenomic guided treatment than not. And so to be super clear, this is not about any one particular type of test. This is about pharmacogenetic testing as a class. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, from my perspective, is that not only did we do the what's the chance of, you know, remission or, you know, response, we also looked at what's the quality of the data and what's the chance of bias? And on those counts, this this area is a shit show. Let's just be honest. So the quality of data is low and the risk of bias is high. So this to me explains why you're going to get, um, you know, people with knowledge in this field looking at the same pile of data and coming to very different conclusions about what it means in terms of implementation. Some people are going to value the 1.4 greater time, you know, chance of remission, and other people are going to value the low quality of data and high risk of bias. So, like, you know, in terms of what do I think about it, um, I, I think it's I think it's a shit show. And I've been, you know, I've been party to some of these situations you know of desperation that you're talking about you know where people have been through umpteen trials of antidepressants and just cannot find one that works for them and under those circumstances I mean like you know if 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 all you've got to lose is some money um for paying for it and you know I'm going to assume that you've got a really good strong relationship with your psychiatrist and then it's going to get ordered in that context and then it's going to get counseled in that context. Then, so, you know, why but not? I'm, I just want to say, because like, this is new data to me, this is new information. To it's me. new data to everybody. One, it's not one hand, 1.3. I earlier in the show, I stressed that uh, relative risk of risk reduction exactly. might be quite good sounding. But the absolute risk That's is right. I actually think this is the opposite. 1.3, 1.4. Um, times more likely to have remission uh, is stronger perhaps than it sounds like because so many people with depression get better spontaneously. Mm. So a treatment or for an intervention like a test to work against a background, Mm -hmm. any people getting better spontaneously, it really has to work for Mm. those people who are going to be the non-responders, right? Because you're only amplifying this small percentage of the total pool. And so to to, to have a result that shows up in the total pool as half, um, you know, a third again, as many people getting well, you're really reaching the people who weren't going to get well in numbers. So on that hand, on the other hand, I know exactly what you're saying. I've looked at some, you know, people ask because I'm a genetic counselor. They're like, should I do this? And and I know the that the data often it doesn't follow people for very far out. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Medication don't always show up fast. And and the and I know that a lot of the studies were done by people employed by the companies, which is exactly. always an unnerving thing. So I feel like what you're saying here is lots of potential. We really need some independent trials. Exactly. That- I think that's a beautiful summation. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, let's be let's be really clear that the, this 
this is your subjective interpretation of the things that I've just said, right? Because again, like, you know, other people are going to look at the 1.4 increased chance of remission and go, fuck it, let's do it People say on Twitter, tweets are my own, representing no one else, blah, blah, blah. I feel like like, if I was going to get a tattoo, that would be like, (laughs) remarks are my own, representing no one. Uh, Guaranteed to have any truth behind them. But Janine, because I know know you're going to have to finish and there's just, there's one thing I, I just... I have to ask you, even though it's sort of coming away from the uh, clinical picture questions, which I'm really enjoying the answers to. You famously spoke about imposter syndrome when you became NSGC president. I believe it was in 2016. Mm. You gave a speech that has had, I think, an enormous impact only because everybody fucking talks about imposter syndrome all the time now. I had never heard the term before. So it's a very influential speech. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. But I have always wondered, how on earth do you actually found a field when you struggle with imposter syndrome? Did you have take a lot of convincing yourself before you got to others? Like, how does that work? How does it work? Um, And this is actually, thank you for asking about this. This is actually super important to me. Um, And interestingly, I actually... (laughs) I did a talk at the Hamilton Regional Genetics Conference like last week, literally on imposter. Spoke there last year. Hey, there you go. Um, Yeah. And actually, this is so important that if we do go a bit over, then I'm happy to do that because this matters to me so much. So I'm I'm really grateful that you asked um, because, yeah, when when I was becoming NSGC president, that was like part of my um, incoming presidential address. Um, And yeah, I talked about why I had imposter syndrome, which is basically because I was desperately afraid of being found out as someone who lives with depression. I felt that what I had been shown in society about leaders was that they did not have depression and that um, I felt basically that people would never have elected me as president if they'd known that about me. Um, And so, yeah, I very much did feel like a fraud. And I also felt guilty because I'd hidden this from everyone Um, and I could pass someone who is not depressed a lot of the time um but yeah I very much knew how society feels about this stuff um so I I knew that I wasn't making this stuff up that people wouldn't want me to be a leader if they knew that about me it felt it felt very real so a part of my talk was about how I felt I had to conquer my imposter syndrome you know and I'm using frantically air quotes everywhere again, um, by being brave and, you know, um, talking about it and projecting confidence and so on. Um, and so I, I included in my address a whole bunch of ideas for how, you know, it was really about how genetic counsellors could take their rightful place as, you know, leaders in, you know, the implementation of genomic medicine. Um, and, you know, so I literally said really embarrassing stuff about like how genetic counselors need to like you know speak up and sit at the table and I think about this stuff now Laura and I literally cringe it's so painful because I've really come in recent years thanks to reading um, lots of stuff primarily from black feminists and women of color about how the concept of imposter syndrome is actually just a tool of the white of white supremacy and patriarchy. Um, You know, just referring to it as a syndrome makes it a problem of the individual Um, and buying into it. I think we like it. We like it as a concept because it gives us a sense of control over things. So we're back to that concept of control. 
So, you know, the control that we're told that we can exert is to be more assertive, fake it till you make it, act like a man, basically. Right. And so if we're thinking about why we experience this stuff in the first place, maybe it's not just because we're spontaneously telling ourselves stories that we are we don't deserve to be where we're at. Maybe it's because we're picking up on signals from our environment that we don't belong. Right. So. And, and, and so the words I've learned um, from somebody whose name is Rageshri Dariawan. Oh, God, sorry, I butchered her name. Dariawan. Um, she's on Twitter. Follow her. She's brilliant. Um, so from her, I've learned the terms testimonial injustice and credibility deficit. And when I learned those terms, it was literally like a light bulb going off. And it was it was almost as powerful for me as when I heard the terms, the words genetic and counselor together that I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Right. So, um, you know, as you know, I'm an academic. Right. And and I'm a full professor, a research intensive university and um, where, you know, the, the proportion of of people who are not men in those positions is very, very small. So I, I no longer actually identify as a woman. You know, last year I realized that I was actually a gender um, but um, so, so this is a relatively new thing for me. But it, it leads into a beautiful example of what I believe to be testimonial injustice, credibility deficit. So one of my experiences that um, I, I I'd received a really prestigious it's called a Canada research chair. Right. And so it's a federal thing that supports your salary for like 10 years. And it's so it's like super like ridiculously elitey thing right and one of my white male colleagues said to his credit he said this to my face he said oh you only got that because you're a woman right <laughs> so this is this isn't just so this isn't just me telling myself I don't deserve this this is somebody literally saying out loud and to my face that I don't belong that I don't deserve the success that I've achieved right so 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 that's that's the core of what testimonial injustice and credibility deficit is about. And as genetic counselors, like the reason I cringe so hard when I think about that piece of my presidential address is just because I focused so much on like, you know, fixing ourselves as individuals, you know, take, you know, which sure there are things, you know, we might be whatever. But really, we've got to crush the patriarchy at this point, like. You know, it's really it, we got to change the environments in which we're operating. It, you know, we've got to address the colonialist white supremacist patriarchy that causes us to feel those of us that are not old, abled, cis, het white men that, that those, you know, to, to address those things that make us feel like we don't belong. Yeah, um, that's an incredible story. And also sort of a, a little cautionary tale in there is like as we attempt in some ways to move away from gendered language and so on, we can't forget that gender has been a significant experience yes. for a historical era, you know, epoch forever, right? Yes. And the experience that you had there was the experience of being a woman in the society. Yes. How do you choose to identify, right? Yeah, like, exactly. I present as a woman. People react don't, respond to me as, yeah. Right. And we don't want to erase that experience or the no. importance of it. Like, And so that's a tricky balancing thing right now, I think. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, Janine, I have to say that um, I have always um, uh, been in wonderment for one of the reasons. So let me, let me start. Several. I have to say, 
you know, when I talk to students or other genetic counselors about people in the field um, who have a name for themselves, there's you know, a big wide range of reaction, but very often people are like, oh, you know, that's interesting. I admire her or whatever. But when I talk about Janine, there's this eyes lighting up quality that people have. My students are excited if they get to work with them and so on. And a piece of this, oh dear, I'm embarrassing them. A piece of this is that you are uniquely able to leverage your own story. Because I think when you bring yourself into it, it's never just to talk about yourself, but it's always done very intentionally and very selectively to allow people to see their own experience mirrored in your own experience. And I really admire that in you enormously because it's so hard to do. It seems easy. It seems like the easiest thing is like, look at me. But actually, look at me usually turns into look at me, you know, and not look at me. This is the experience that humans have, you know. Um, so I admire that and I appreciate it. And I think it's done wonderful things for our field. And I'm sure it's done wonderful things for and your uh the people you, you work with that means an awful lot because that is exactly what I'm trying to do I'm trying to uh, you know it's it's literally about trying to to use my experience for the benefit of others if it can you know that's absolutely the motivation so thank you yeah thank you for seeing it I I do and I've seen it in in various public situations and private situations over I can literally say this now decades <laughs> So the only thing we didn't get to, and I'm so glad that I got to this question at the end, was an article you've written about the third type of testing I mentioned, which is testing individuals with psychiatric disease for causal. And you did not think that routine testing for schizophrenia and autism was a good idea. Do you have a minute to talk about that? Yeah, let's do it. It's just so interesting. And so, okay, so this is not about I didn't think it was a good idea. Like the, the whole purpose of this paper that we published was that I didn't know what to think. And I wanted to know what to think. Like I kept having this fucking conversation over and over with people. And they would literally say things like, well, we do genetic testing for people with autism. Therefore, we should do it for people with schizophrenia. And I was like, okay that doesn't feel like it. I mean that's a justice-based argument right and it felt very superficial to me and like it didn't really fit but I didn't have I didn't know what I did think and I didn't know what really to say other than but it's different <laughs> <laughs> so so the point of the paper was to try to figure out in what ways are those situations different and does it matter? And should we, in fact, because I want to be informed. I don't want to be just doing things as much as I value my emotions and my intuition. I don't want to be making recommendations or decisions for other people for their treatment based on that. I want to be able to stand by evidence and, you know, rigorous thought processes in those kinds that's, of situations. That's been your that's something you brought to genetic counseling one of your you would say soapboxes is genetic counseling has to be evidence-based medicine and yeah. you were talking about that when I think very few people were thinking that way now I think many more are yeah no I think it's everybody's there now which is brilliant um so anyway yeah that that was the impetus for the paper was like okay well you know 
what can we actually pass out if we if we actually apply a rigorous ethical analysis framework to this question? And what we ended up doing was like having to articulate all of the similarities and differences um, between the etiologies and natural histories of autism and schizophrenia. Oh, my God, it got so messy. And, and it turned into like having to actually articulate the diagnostic criteria over time for autism and how that related to the use of genetic testing. I mean, actually, I kind of totally geeked out on it. I loved it. But it was a lot messier than I was initially <laughs> imagining. And um, yeah, anyway, so so but so anyway, read the paper. I can't possibly do justice to the whole thing in like three minutes. But the outcome where we got to in the end was basically that um, as it's all it's obvious and dull but like as we all know if somebody has autism plus a bunch of other stuff uh, yeah genetic testing makes a ton of sense ton of sense and one would even argue that you know if you have schizophrenia and a bunch of other stuff genetic testing makes sense but if we're talking about autism on its own schizophrenia on its own mm, not it's not as clear that the benefits outweigh the potential harms. But if you get even deeper into passing it out, right, there are more potential benefits for people who are still children of that kind of testing than there are for adults, right? So you get into all sorts of really sticky stuff around, well, poor adults with schizophrenia, you know, if they could have been tested when they were children, shouldn't we test for them now? But the the, the harms and benefits all actually change in their dynamics um, with the aging process. And so, yeah, it was a fascinating paper to write. Hard That's to wrap a fascinating point to make because almost invariably you hear that reversed. Don't, don't test the, the harms and benefits are uh, move against testing children yeah and you know okay when they're adults yeah. i guess that that's coming at it from the ethics side that's yeah 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 here. uh but i think the underlying point there is that those are different parts of life and absolutely you have to assess them on their own case i'm very big on that i'm very big on assessing things individually and looking at them and not because they resemble something else like mm-hmm. me too because i think that actually it is the details um that usually determine what people's experience of a thing is, you know? Yeah. And that, and then, and, and not the, not the overall big top line picture, but you know, is it getting worse? Is it, is it progressive? Is it familiar? Yeah. All these questions. Totally. Yeah. It's stigmatized. That's right. It's like one of my soapboxes is that, you know, like it's not the information itself that matters. It's how the information is delivered that makes the difference. You know, if we're talking about genetic counseling stuff. Um, But anyway, yeah, I completely. So in summary, yes, completely agree. Well, fantastic. Well, I have like held on to Janine. If if she was here, I would have held on physically, but I instead I (laughs) held on emotionally to keep her here to answer that last question. But I know I have to let her go but I let you go with such thanks for your time and your lovely it's always fun to your chat brilliance and your friendship and everything else and I hope everyone else enjoyed this as much as I did and oh what do I always say go to the website subscribe follow me on Twitter all that good stuff take care everybody today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae when the question is genetics the answer is Invitae